from good to bad to downright ugly. Let's pray. Father, we welcome you here today by your Spirit. And we are aware of the fact that today is Pentecost Sunday. That just 10 days ago in the Christian calendar is the day Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, poised for the day when he will return. But as you were ascending, you reminded your leadership team, you reminded us to welcome the outpouring of the Spirit, which came some 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit's infilling, which is available to every believer, which is the normal Christian life. And so we just pray and welcome yet another outpouring of your Spirit. Speak into our life, empower our life. May the fruit of the Spirit, the nine elements of the fruit of the Spirit, be at work in and through us. May the spiritual gifts, the ones that you have assigned specifically to each believer, be at work. May your world be transformed. So we invite you to be here, to be blessed, to be honored as we consider your word now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Who of us have not had a day that started out really good and we went from good to bad to downright ugly? Some time ago, Debbie and I were having a day off together, and we were excited for the day. It started out so well, and we had a number of errands to run through the day, and we got started on those. And one of those was to take one of our previous vehicles in, because there was a shimmy in the front right tire. And I thought, well, probably it's a wheel balance, or perhaps it needs a wheel alignment, and probably for 150 bucks max, we're in and we're out, problem solved. And so we dropped the car off and we started in on our errands and all of a sudden the phone rang and the phone call, Mr. Dixon, we found some other difficulties in your car and the bill, the estimate for repairs is going to be $800. And you know how that goes when you get those kind of phone calls, your heart starts to palpitate, a little bit of a sweat breaks out on your forehead and you're furiously thinking, should I do this or not? And of course you say, yes, you know, I need to do this. And so you say, go ahead and do it. And we continued on with our day and, and a short time later, the phone rang again, that dreaded tremoring of the cell phone. And I looked and I could see on call display, it was them again. And needless to say, my heart was really pumping now. More bad news. The new estimate is now going to be $1,200. And that was an example of a day that started out with such great potential, a good day that turned bad and got downright ugly. And we've all had days like that. Moses went through that kind of experience when he initiated, when he stepped into his divinely commissioned mission in Egypt. So just remember with me that the first time he tried to see the children of Israel liberated from slavery and off into the promised land in Exodus chapter 2, 
He tried to do it in his own way, on his own timeline, and in his own strength, and he had total mission failure. After 80 years of preparation, this time around, God calls him in Exodus chapter 3, and he reluctantly says yes to God's call on his life. And then you'll remember from last week, Moses is now walking in chapter 4 in God's will, operating in God's way. God's will, God's way. And we see the first of the three Ps that we see repeating themselves all through the history of Scripture and all through the history of the church and in our own lives. And the first of the three year Ps is there's a promise from God or a project from God. And as they got ready to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and slavery and go into the wilderness, we've been saying, in a certain sense, we're going through our own style of the wilderness, of the desert, right now in our world, in our lives. And as we're doing that, God is presenting all kinds of opportunities to us. And there's promise, there's projects that he's been giving us, just like he did Moses. And so Moses gets ready to leave the staging area of the mission. And so if you have your Bible or your device, turn with me to Exodus. We're going to be looking in chapters 5 and 6. And as Pastor Brian said earlier, I encourage you to be reading ahead in the story. We're not going to read all of these verses. So read the whole story. Read ahead in the story. Understand what's going on. Let me begin, actually, by reading verses 29 through 31 of chapter 4, because the mission is about to launch, and here's how it launches. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, all the leaders of the Israelites. And Moses told, rather, Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshiped. Well, things look incredibly promising. The people are on side. The leaders are on side. Let's get cracking. Let's step into this mission. And I can just imagine Moses. He's thinking to himself, well, I'm a little bit nervous, but you know, it's really good to be now in that place, that sweet spot in life where I'm walking hand in hand with God, doing what God wants me to do, taking up the opportunities that he's presented to me. And he goes with Aaron now, with the support of the leaders, with the support of the people. He goes with Aaron and he makes a presentation to Pharaoh. And this is the background now as we begin reading in chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses, 
and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out to the people. This is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, Why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or before or today or as before? Let my people go. They say to Pharaoh and worship God in the desert. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is this God of the Hebrews? I don't acknowledge this God of Israel who you call Yahweh. In Egypt, they worshiped a multitude of gods, perhaps as many as 80 different gods. And Pharaoh himself was considered a God by the people. The garment he had on had symbols of his deity on his garment. And so it was quite an ego stroke for him to have people bow down and worship him as a god. And he says, who is the Lord? And I would imagine that he did this with a sarcastic tone in his voice. I don't acknowledge this God. I don't know this God. And the stage is set. The gauntlet is dropped, is thrown down by Pharaoh, in which the one true God versus the man who would be God. And Pharaoh hardens and begins to harden his heart for the first time and says, no way to God. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week and that temptation that can reside in our life to say no to God and to begin to harden our heart more and more and more against the things that he calls us to. Well, through the rest of the day, as Pharaoh is thinking about what Moses and Aaron have said to him, he's getting madder and madder and madder. And he's thinking to himself, who do they think they are to challenge my authority? And in verse 6, he calls in the foreman of his job sites and he says, do not provide straw to these people anymore. The Hebrews are to continue making the same quota, the same number of bricks each day, but do not give them any straw. Go and worship their God. Who do they think they are? I'll show them who's boss and Lord around here. And so the slave drivers begin to beat the Hebrews to keep up the pace. And this is the pride of Pharaoh 
on display, his besetting sin, which we are going to see over and over and over again next week. This book has many examples of besetting sins, whether in Moses' life or Pharaoh's life or in the people's life, that caused incredible hardship. Is there a besetting sin in my life? I suppose by doing this, Pharaoh assumed that the people would turn against Moses and Aaron. Stop drawing them away from working so hard, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron. Well, how did the people react to this? Verse 15 and verse 16. Then the Israelite foreman went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Let's jump over to verse 20 and 21. Pharaoh doesn't react well to what these guys say at all calls them lazy and so forth. And it says in verse 20, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in his hand and in their hand to kill us. It's interesting to me how people can be totally wrong and yet think they are totally right and justified in their position. And there's a dire warning here against pronouncing judgment before we make sure we know what we're talking about. Because we may be speaking against God and God's mission and God's anointed, the plan that God has ordained, like they were. And this pattern of the besetting sin of the people, murmuring and complaining against the leadership and ultimately, in this case, against God indirectly. And is this a strong temptation right now in the church, what we're going through in the pandemic? Absolutely. Against government, against those in authority over us, and against church leadership. Has the government, now this is just speaking in my opinion here, has the government gotten every call right in the last 15 months? Well, I think they've gotten a number of the calls right, but I don't think they've gotten every call right. Do church leaders sometimes make mistakes? Yes. Do pastors make mistakes? Yes. Does Scott make mistakes? Yes. But when it comes to murmuring or complaining or pronouncing judgment, we better make sure we know what we're talking about. We better make sure we're praying for those in authority over us. We better be under their authority properly, which the scriptures clearly tell us to do in Romans and other places. Well, what does that look like in this passage? Some very specific direction to us about what that should look like what it looked like for them, and what it should look like for us right now. What does this passage illustrate? Well, first of all, they complied. They did what they were told, which we have sought to do as a church all through the last 15 months, as there has been directive after directive from the government, sometimes changes every day or every week. We have tried our best 
to comply. I don't think we've been 100% successful or completely accurate, but we have tried to comply, as they did. Secondly, they consulted. They asked questions. We see this in verse 15. They asked questions. In fact, they asked some really strong questions. How is this supposed to work, Pharaoh? Would you give us clarity, Pharaoh? And they asked questions about what I would call a totally unfair edict by Pharaoh. In fact, I would go further and say it was a cruel edict by Pharaoh. And over the last 15 months, we have done the same thing. We have asked questions over and over again. We have written emails, we have made phone calls, we have explored the government website extensively, we've been asking and looking for clarification. When the last restrictions came down on May the 4th, Pastor Aaron wrote a lengthy email asking very specific questions. What does this mean? How do we apply these things? How do we do these things properly? Thirdly, they challenged, which they clearly did in verse 16. And we are blessed in a similar fashion in our society to be able to do this. We can comply, we can ask for clarity, and we can challenge. We are able to ask questions, we are able to ask for clarification, but we can also challenge, we can instigate petitions, we can write letters. We can phone our MP or our MLA. We can voice our opinions. We can peacefully demonstrate. We can even, in some cases, people have done this, we can pursue legal challenges. Last year, for example, we wrote letters to our city administration, our city government, about some of their pronouncements, and we said, we want to push back against this. We want to challenge your thoughts on this. And to the local city government's credit, they made changes and they did what we asked. We can do all of these things without murmuring, without complaining. And to be honest with you, have I always been perfect in this in the last year as regards to those in authority over me? I haven't. And I'm not real proud about that. I haven't always done this stuff without murmuring and complaining. But the reality is, we can comply while we are strongly consulting and vigorously challenging. But there's a fourth thing, which these guys did, which they do in verse 21, which was to disobey. They curse Moses in verse 21. Remember, they were all on board and they say, let's get on with the mission. And when it, the problems start to arise, they curse Moses and by extension, God. As Moses is currently operating in God's will and God's way. And they disobey that way. Now, is there ever a time to disobey? I would say yes. We talked about this earlier in this series. We're going to talk about it more later in this series. But the very short answer is, the Bible says when the authorities try to tell us not to preach Jesus, then we disobey. That is certainly not the case right now during the pandemic. They've never said that to us. What they have done is put some 
health restrictions on. And here in chapter 5, what Pharaoh did was he made a pronouncement over the straw, which I would say was totally unfair and even cruel in chapter 5. In all of this, we need to be asking these kinds of questions. What is the lasting legacy we want to leave with the secular public when this is all over? They're watching us. Secondly, will what I'm about to do help fulfill the church's mission? And then finally, and I think this is a great summarization by Andy Stanley of the key question to ask, what would love do? What would love do? Well, the people thought they were right in attacking Moses, who was God's anointed, who was operating in God's will, God's way. And they were wrong. And even perhaps more importantly, they were wrong in the way they went about it. And we know because of this besetting sin of theirs, we know what happened to them later. Because this besetting sin of murmuring and complaining and condemning kept cropping up in the people's lives. And we know what happened to them later in the story. So how does Moses respond to God when all of this takes place? He might have been something, thinking about something like this. Here I am, I'm finally doing God's will, God's way, and what happens? Everything goes wrong. Everything goes sideways. And he might have been thinking to himself, at least when I tried to do it back in chapter 2, the only person that really suffered was me. Now, as I'm trying to do it in God's will, God's way, everybody's suffering, all two million plus of us. And they are all blaming me, and they are all cursing me as well. And I am going to assume that whatever God's opportunity is for you, as we go through the wilderness, as we go through the desert together, that you have set yourself to do it, or that you will say yes to God's call, God's opportunity, God's project for you in the wilderness. Let me ask you this. Can you expect some adversity as you say yes? Absolutely. Will everything be a bed of roses as you pursue whatever God has laid in your heart to do in the desert? Absolutely not. And you will experience the second of the three Ps that we see repeat. This pattern is repeated over and over in Scripture. The first one is God gives a promise or a project. And after that, there are a series of problems. And it's not always linear. Sometimes they mix over and over again, and we even see this illustrated in chapter 6 of Exodus. The promise keeps getting reiterated in chapter 6 as the problems keep coming. Well, how does Moses react to this? He asks two very familiar questions. Why and how? Let me read them to you in verse 22 and 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. 
over to chapter 6, verse 12. But Moses, this is the how question, but Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? How's this going to work, God, since I speak with faltering lips? The why and the how. And in fact, it's like Moses is almost saying to God, I told you so, God. And Moses is wallowing in despair because the situation has gone sideways. It's gone from good to bad to downright ugly. How does God respond to Moses? How will God respond to you as you're pursuing the opportunity, the promises that he's laid before you as we go through the wilderness, as we go through the desert? How will God respond? And he speaks directly to Moses in chapter 6 about his nature and the things that he will do. In verse 2, in verses 6 through 8, and verse 29, let me just read verse 2 to you. It says this, God said to Moses, I am the Lord. Five different times in those five verses, he says to Moses, I am am the Lord. He's responding to Moses asking the why question and the how question as the promises come up. God's response is, I am the Lord. Five different times he says this. And he's saying this to Moses over and over again because he's emphasizing the need every one of us has to focus wholeheartedly, directly on him. And the fact of the matter is we will be unable to endure the adversity, the problems we go through when we're walking in God's will, God's way. When things go from good to bad to downright ugly, unless our attention is focused on the Lord. And God very deliberately does this in chapter 6. He reminds Moses again and again and again, I am the Lord. And he's bringing to mind the images of God's sovereignty his goodness, his power to accomplish the mission, the fact that he's a just God, that he's a compassionate God, that he's a loving God, that he's a wise God, that he is eternal in nature. And he's reminding us, friends, it's all about Jesus. We have to be deeply focused on him. We have to be operating in the power of the Spirit. And God is saying, Moses, listen, I get it. I've seen everything that's happened. I I know intimately how difficult this is for you. But I have your back, Moses. I will confront these issues, Moses. We're going to see that happen next week. I'm going to deal with the problems. I'm going to work the problem. But all the time I'm doing this, Moses, you have to be desperately focused on me, because I am the Lord. Then he says seven times, he reiterates the promise, seven times. The problems are cropping up over and over again, and seven times he repeats the promise in verses six through eight. Read them with me. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. 
Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession because I am the Lord. Seven times he reiterates the promise. This is what I will do in your situation. Moses, I called you to this. You obeyed. And that's a very good question to ask yourself. Are we obeying? Are we obeying? Moses, you obeyed, and now the whole nation is mad at you, but my faithfulness, my promise, will outlast this terrible blow. I might summarize it like this, because I am who I am, I will always do what I say I am going to do. You know, God does not take a holiday when it becomes difficult. He shows us another side of his character that will sustain us, that will drive us to him. Johnny Erickson Tata, a name some of you are familiar with, has spent, I think it's more than 40 years as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair because of a diving accident that happened to her when she was a young teenager. After she became a quadriplegic, she became a committed, spirit-filled follower of Jesus. And she points out, if you read some of her stuff, the long, difficult path she's been on. And she says, every time I sort of managed to start getting a handle on my situation, a new affliction would pop up. And she has gone through a whole series of ongoing affliction, including cancer in recent days. And she said, these things have prevented me from keeping commitments and deadlines in my life. But then she writes, but, she writes this, God is more concerned with my growing closer to his heart than keeping commitments or public ministry. It is odd, she writes, but my suffering, mostly my physical affliction, has been that which has made my quest easier. At night, I have to lay down by 8 p.m., and all I can do is move my head. That's all she can do. And she writes, and for me, that is like fasting. My disability is a physical condition that subdues my wanton spiritual appetites. I have to go to God. I have no other place to go. So it hasn't been a roadblock on my quest for God. It has paved the way. And during your time in the wilderness, what has this paved for you? What is being paved for you? Well, we are walking in God's will and God's way, and things go from good to bad to downright ugly. We believe these truths. We cling to them. And then... Verse 20, 11 and verse 29 of chapter 6. Verse 11. Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. Verse 29. And he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. God says, get back to work, Moses. 
Moses, don't stay focused on the problems in the wilderness. Get back to work and get on with the mission. Get on with the mission. What point are we at right now? The band can come now. We can get you to come. What point are we at? Are we ready to turn and run, to give up, to run up the white flag? I challenge you, don't repeat from doing the will of God for your life. God says, I am the Lord, and I will do this. 